Hey everyone, this is Nick. Welcome to Required Reading. This time we're doing a more contemporary nonfiction book, The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. This is a true crime mixed with American history, mixed with weird, crazy stuff, man. It's 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 a blast. It's it's like no book I had read before, making all sorts of fun little connections between the various parts. Uh, I'm excited to talk about it here because I think this is a interesting piece that I don't know if it would be heard in the classroom. So enjoy this episode. Thanks. Welcome to Required Reading, a podcast I get better at pronouncing every time we do. Uh, this week, this whatever, this episode, we're talking about Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, a classic of true crime and American development and all the themes we talk about in the American experiment class. I'm Dr. Nick Hoffman, and on panel we've got... And I'm Mike Burns. Um, and we, well, I mean, we've talked about this before, uh, but we give our kids book choices, and and true crime is hot right now, so an uh, enterprising group of young women have chosen to do this book, and uh, so we thought it'd be appropriate for us to crack it out and, you know... Yeah. It, it, like I said, um, we were talking before we went on air here that it's been on my shelf for a long time. And then when some kids chose it, I finally got around to reading it and uh, we'll talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, I guess my version of the same story is right about when my daughter was born or right after. I wasn't sleeping a lot, as you do. And mm. so I got really into creepy, like, half, <laughs> right. and, and I listened to a podcast called Last Podcast on the Left and they talked about. H.H. H. Holmes, and I'm like, wait, I think I have that book on my bookshelf. I had just never gotten to it. You know, I picked this up used from like Second or Charles and something. Right. Uh, and I just tore through it. Like, because it is, it's that mixture of just when you think it would be only a true crime book, it goes back to the, the building of the White City and Edison and Tesla and everything. Like, it's, it's such a perfect... Uh, it, it reminds me of something like Bill Bryson would do where it's like a moment in time. Right. right? Like, and it, it's hard to get everything into one book but larson does it quite successfully in a way that i don't think he's successful in thunderstruck but um oh really huh although i do uh the book the the, the tag on the front cover is author of isaac storm isaac storm is excellent that's about the galveston hurricane um and isaac was the meteorologist who predicted it was coming uh so he gets the unfriendly moniker but uh so mike take us through this book a little bit okay so just the the basic premise is it's a sort of a story told in tandem of the um, 1893 um, exposition in Chicago, Columbian Exposition, essentially the World's Fair, um, how that comes about, how the heavy hitters of Chicago business and industry dream this up and make it happen and actually pull it off. And so that's a sort of uh, rags to riches American tale, like the underdog. Chicago is uh, the second city, as it's known as and uh, how they do that. And then in tandem, in parallel, um, H.H. Holmes, who you mentioned, is a um, doctor slash pharmacist slash entrepreneur slash insurance fraudster um, who is uh, operating in Chicago and um, luring women in, and they suddenly disappear. So... Um, yeah, America's first serial killer that we know of, Nick? Is that fair to say? Well, at least the first one that we'd actually classify as a serial killer. Like, okay. you know, we have people who are doing research paper on, like, the Harper Boys and stuff who are, like, highwaymen. And, you know, we don't really think of outlaws in the same way. But, like, this is the guy that we think of 
up alongside like a Jeff Dahmer or John Wayne Gacy who has a plan and he has a formula and he's clearly deranged and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's, it, it's, we never get too deep, but there's lots of uh, experimenting on bodies and uh, he's using, selling the cadavers and dissecting. And so there's, there's some twisted pathology, no pun intended there, um, <laughs> going on, uh, which is the darker side of the story. Yeah. And I mean, what, what's cool about this is we never focus on one character for too terribly long, right? Uh, we have Burnham, who is a young upstart um, like architect at the beginning of this, and then he moves up the ranks to be the one who wants to be proud of his city, right? right? Um, and I guess you could almost call Chicago kind of a character in this because... Oh, absolutely, yeah. It, it, it's, I mean, they describe it as a stinky meatpacking town pretty much, and then this is an attempt to... Uh, take advantage of, you mentioned Olmstead, of the City Beautiful movement, right? Because this is wedged right between the Paris Exposition, where they unveil the Eiffel Tower, and the Brussels Exposition, where they unveil the Atomium. Like, and so we're like, well, where does Chicago fit? Because everyone's like, well, it's New York, it's D.C. No, 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 right. this is Chicago. And then how can they possibly pull it off? This is Chicago, this backwater Midwest sort of city that no one gives much credit to. So That's right. There's the, there's the underdog theme as... as uh heavy in this but that's what americans love right we, we love those comeback stories oh, well yeah go ahead. no no please and and what this book does well as we're kind of getting into it is making connections to literally everyone and everything that's going on at the time like uh 1896 is the atlanta cotton states exposition and somewhere between there and now uh william olmstead is or uh frederick law olmstead is going to make the Columbian Exposition, he's going to make uh, the Biltmore Estate. He's working on Central Park and trying to stop them from ruining that. He makes Piedmont Park. Like, Walt Disney's dad is <laughs> introduced at one point. Right. Um, not to mention the fact that Ferris invents the Ferris wheel. Hot dogs, at, hot dog buns, and waffle cones are invented. Shredded wheat, Cracker Jacks. <laughs> I mean, all these crazy things. <laughs> and Tesla and Edison are just floating around. Yeah. Because that's not like... And again, like in an era where people fetishize Tesla... He's like a tenth tier character, and that's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a in the introduction he mentioned he just name drops all these people that were associated with the fair, and then they come up in the story. But as you said, they're secondary. So there's right. so much rich material here. He's got uh, Buffalo Bill, Theodore Dreiser, Susan B. Anthony, Jane Adams, Clarence Darrow, George Westinghouse, Thomas Edison, Henry Adams, Archduke Francis Ferdinand, <laughs> Nikola Tesla. Uh, I don't know this one, Ignacy Padruski, uh, Philip Armour, Marshall Field, and all these people are just floating in and out of this tapestry of a story. So uh, no lack for big names here. Yeah. And, and, and what's cool about it is as they come across, he gives all of them their proper place in the story, right? Um, because what this story is, is I, I don't even know how to put this, it ends with like an assassination that has nothing to do with the crimes we've been following throughout. True. Um, but what we're doing is we're telling the story of a city in a moment and how at like you strip it around. There's, there's no way to get around this. Right. I don't know. Like it, it's really interesting. Cause like, yeah, Frederick Douglass gives a speech here. Right. Like um, Ida Wells gives speeches here. Like, and the civil rights movement protests because they wanted to put them to the side. So instead, they give their speeches outside. Buffalo Bill gives away tickets because they won't give him a space. But right. had so, they given him a space, they would have made all this money. Like, yeah, he just sets up shop next door. He's, he's poaching on the whole fair, and he kills it. I mean, and so, yeah, it's a, just an interesting study in commerce as well. 
yeah and self-promotion and um i mean as far as how we I, I don't know how we even talk about this book in terms of chronologically, uh, because there's nine different plot lines. Right. Um, but it, it is told chronologically. I mean, it is. Uh, he sets it up a little bit, and then sort of... And you know where it's going all along. If you know anything about this, I mean, you know it ends fairly well, at least for the exposition. Um, but he still draws you in and, and teases you enough with, with a sort of novelist pacing to, to keep you going. That's right. Um, it's really good. I, one thing I wanted to say, just as I was reading this, it was hard for me not to think of Atlanta in like in the build up to the Olympics, mm -hmm. because like just all the movers and shakers that are trying to make this happen, like who the heck is Atlanta to try and do this on the world stage? And um, not absolutely not quite the same, but there's a very sort of similarity of um, an underdog trying to promote a city and, and making it all happen. Yeah, I mean, and the parallels don't end there. I mean, instead of an assassination, we had a bombing. Right. But, like, it just feels like, well, I guess we were right about Atlanta. Yeah. You know, I mean, and um, it also just, underneath it all, you just realize the nightmare of, I, I don't even remember who was in charge of Atlanta. Billy Payne. Billy Payne, yeah. yeah. How much of a nightmare that must Marist, have been. Uh, grandfather, actually. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Like, but just trying to coordinate everything, like the building of Turner Field, the the, the fixing of the uh, the dorms outside of Georgia Tech. like. Right. Like, and 200 million corporate sponsors, right? Like, it just, it must have been a nightmare. But yeah, the, the sense of the city, and he, and he does this at, at various points, just the sense of the buzz that was around it. Everyone was either associated with it, you're working on it, or you know someone's volunteering, or you're trying to host, or trying to finagle to get tickets or something. So I imagine that energy was very similar um, in Chicago at the time period. Yeah, I mean, and in the 17 years since this book has come out, uh, the film rights were purchased almost a decade ago by uh, Leo DiCaprio. I don't know how you make this into a movie. I, I think it would be interesting as a miniseries, you know, the, like that right. are so popular right now. But Yeah, you'd have to stretch it out because there's so many storylines to follow. That I don't think a two-hour movie would do do it justice. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. I, I So uh, there's essentially four parts to this book. There's the getting of the fair, and the kind of birth of all these characters, uh, mainly Burnham, the the mayor who gets assassinated at the end. Um, you have Olmstead, and you have Herman Mudgett, who becomes H.H. H. Holmes. Right, and then who's um, Burnham's partner, um, Root? Root, who, yeah. who doesn't make it. Right. A, a lot of people die. <laughs> There's a lot of death in this book. Um, and it kind of establishes you know, Burnham as this... A uh, hot young architect who builds up a reputation for himself, his love of the city. He's really behind the big push to get Chicago the Columbian Exposition, um, among other things. I mean, like, it, it goes to Congress, of all things. I didn't right. realize Congress was behind this. Um, it reminds me of, was it the 2012 Olympics that, no, I, I think it was the 2016 Olympics that Obama was actively advocating uh, for Chicago to get. Uh, then, of course, Chicago doesn't end up getting it, but... Um, but like, it just, it seems like there's so many working parts, like, like there was an international treaty on world's fairs and it's like, right. we, it was our turn to have one. So we just, we threw out Chicago, which is, which was great. Although there was a second there where New York almost stole it away. And that's funny. Um, and then we have Herman Mudgett who enters the scene mostly on fraud, right? Like he, he, he takes out life insurances on people. They disappear. He make, makes the money and he starts to advertise himself as, a pharmacist come doctor. Um, first helping an old lady uh, when her husband is sick, taking that business, flipping it, selling it, opening a rival pharmacy across the street, 
uh, and then moving on down to Chicago. All right. And um, I mean, you can speak about this. I wanted to ask you about his medical training. So he, I guess, looking this up, he graduated from Phillips Exeter, which I didn't know. <laughs> um, and then at 16, and then goes to the University of Vermont for a year or two, mm-hmm. and then sort of drifts and then ends up at the University of Michigan for medical school. Right. But just for like two years? Was that standard medical training in the late 1880s? That would be the proper amount of education. But usually after that kind of like now to a degree, you have your residency. You'd, you'd essentially be an intern. Okay. So he probably, I mean, and again, uh, this is a man who very clearly is more of a con artist. And I mean, he is a serial killer eventually, but a, a con artist. Like, and so... There is that charm. He clearly has a razor-sharp mind. And they, they do a good job here. Like, he remembers everything. He comes up with plans. He comes up with plans for plans and plans and plans. It's an evil genius, really. Yeah. yeah, and so what he probably does is he remembers a lot from his schooling because he doesn't really do much medicine medicine. He remembers how to make chemicals, right? Like, because he does his pharmacy work, which apparently he's successful enough that he's not just killing everyone. Like, eventually the market would catch up if he right. killed 10,000 people. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that's probably enough education at the time. Now he never did the actual medical work, which is also clear here. Except on his own, obviously. Yes. Um, as he, as a hobbyist. As he gathers bodies, right? Yeah. Um, but what struck me, I think, is just how much of that society is just based on trust. Like a guy just shows up and says, I'm a doctor and says, I'm a pharmacist and goes into business. Um, Right. Thankfully, I don't think that could happen today. Um, but he must have been incredibly charming, as as Larson alludes to, just in order to pull this off. Because what he proposes in many places is so ridiculous when you read it, but you just think, oh, he had that knack for persuading people. Well, and especially when we get to his magic murder ca- castle thing, like how he just, like, he never pays anyone. He mm-hmm. just has them work for a few days. He says their work is terrible, and he gets rid of them. And, you know, I mean, let's not even forget, like, he has, uh, like, uh, like, a toady. He has, like, an Igor working right. for him named Peitzel. And <laughs> Peitzel doesn't question a damn thing. Like, it's amazing how people are just drawn into H.H. H. Holmes's web. Yeah, it's so easy to see the blind spots in other people. But, um, yeah, you just wonder, how, how did they not see this coming? And then I guess there are a few people along the way that are suspicious, but he manages to charm them or get rid of them or buy them off. Or Yeah, I've never been able to charm my way out of a death. Like, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know how he keeps doing it. And then time and time again. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, okay, so where do you want to start with? Like, where, where do you want to go from here? Like, Well, I mean, again, we can tell the story chronologically, as Larson does, um, and just sort of the obstacles that they overcome to sort of get the fare first for the first 20 pages, 30 pages or so, and then the actual construction and all the sort of near misses misses and near misses that go on with that. Sure. Um, And then parallel while Holmes is coming around and then setting up shop or yeah, I, let's, I mean, let's do it. It's just, there, there's so many layers here. So, you know, Burnham, Burnham and they, them root start advertising for Chicago. And it's amazing how little idea they actually have, right? It seems like it's not until page, whatever, 250 out of this 
370-page book that they even think, hey, the White City. <laughs> like, it really well, it's feels... almost accident, right? They they end up plastering everything over just as a way to literally whitewash what's um, the construction underneath. Well, and everything is fraught from the beginning. Like they're trying to have these giant halls, uh, uh, like uh, akin to the Crystal Palace, right? And the wind off. Who'd have thought Chicago would be windy? Keeps blowing everything down. Or the soil. I didn't realize that. I mean, you know, you figure Chicago's. Because it has those huge skyscrapers, it must have you know solid bedrock underneath. But I learned that it doesn't. And no. Chicago is notoriously sandy and swampy, and so they have to develop the idea of these. Um, I forget what they call it in here, but essentially you're making a concrete base reinforced with steel in order to build upon that. Well, and the crazy thing about that, if I recall, is when they're first doing it, they essentially have to drill out these holes and put these pylons in, and the construction workers that were going down were getting the bends right. because it was so deep. Yeah. And you're just like, holy... Like, And again, we're now getting to the era in the class where we're talking about like workers' rights. Like, Can you imagine? Like, These were probably pre-union or just unionized jobs. <laughs> and these people are dying of the of bubbles of nitrogen in their brains. Like, yeah. <laughs> and ultimately, this is an optimistic story, as we said, but it would be fun to teach this in parallel or do ex excerpts from Upton Sinclair's The Jungle at the same time. So here they're sort of glossing over these workers that die, but Sinclair dives in deeper with um, the hell of the meatpacking, which well, essentially funded a lot of this. You know, the, the financiers get their money from Armour and uh, McCormick and all those other guys at absolutely. the stockyards. Yeah. Um, and you're, you're eating those Armour hot dogs when you're on the, on the fairgrounds, right? Like, <laughs> right. But I mean, they even have like this kind of passive aggressive line now and again where it's like, Burnham was upset because three workers had died last <laughs> week. And you're just like, holy shit. Like if Disneyland, every, if they, when they were building the new like Animal Kingdom in the 2000s and it was just like, well, I guess another five workers died. You'd be like, no, right. this isn't Jurassic Park. You can't do that. <laughs> yeah. It's just the expendable capital of, of labor in this um but yeah like, as you said it's just a very different time um as far as labor work expectations all that yeah i mean and and uh the other people we can talk to is burnham and his buddy root who root is apparently some sort of savant type who can just picture out a building in his head you know and um then we they reach out to frederick law olmstead who is at this point in his 70s. I think he lives to his 80s, but... Yeah, I think he's 68 when it starts, yeah. Yeah, and, and he is uh, a man who kind of... I mean, he's crucial to the park movement, the city beautiful movement, the idea of... I mean, and Atlanta is kind of in some ways his masterpiece, where there's trees everywhere and public parks and big open spaces. But, like, that that's what he's doing. And if you've ever been to Asheville, North Carolina, he designs the Biltmore Estate, and it's uh, a mixture of you know, nature overtaking, but it's very specific nature overtaking. And he's talking about creepers and vines and he has his hill to die on, which is an island in the middle of the park, uh, in the middle of an artificial lake, um, which is supposed to be natural. And he has to sell it to the damn Chinese or Japanese delegation, but he's okay with that because the Japanese also respect nature. Like, and Yeah. There's a sort of, he connects with them on their Zen Buddha sort of idea that, you know, they're not going to overdevelop it uh, essentially. <laughs> But again, it's like such a great like old man get off my lawn kind of thing that he has going, and he keeps having to go back to Manhattan because they keep trying to pass laws to mess up his park. <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting how I mean, this is such a dumb pun, but ter territorially is about his work <laughs> in that everyone else thinks, oh, landscape architecture, oh, you just throw a few azaleas there, you plant some bulbs, and that's great. Yeah. But he 
his vision for that. And there's a great quote that he says, in laying out Central Park, we determined to think of no result to be realized in less than 40 years. So he knows, uh, you know, has a clear vision of what it's going to look like when these plants develop and when these trees, you know, reach maturity and that. Um, and obviously it's just in America sort of quick business, uh, do it now idea that that's uh, often glossed over. So it's interesting to watch him fight, fight for that. Well, and it, and it is interesting to see how this all unfolds in the park because this is a temporary park, but the park is supposed to be the, like the actual park itself that he's designing is supposed to be permanent, right? Like, and it's, it's interesting to compare this to Disney World and Elias Disney working on this because di if, if anything, Disney is something that refreshes every single day, right? It's not supposed to get, you know, the, 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 the effects of age. No, no, no. The Magic Kingdom is supposed to look like the Magic Kingdom did, you know, every day, right. every single day. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I'm not a Disney fan, but I, I always get stuck on the artificiality of it. Like, it's always sure. too perfect and too, you know, I want something, show me some rust or rod or something, um, well, sort of a patina of age. Well, and that's what, I mean, and we did this last year, of course, but we'll talk about the 1950s and the invention of Disneyland, and that's the contrast that it has constantly, right? You know, like, you go to Manhattan, it's a living city, it's a breathing city, and the park is nice, but... It's something that moves. Disney does not move in that way. It's yes. paper mache. And it's the, the, idealized that way, yeah. You know, and then, then that's kind of interesting because, again, this is a mixture of both, which we don't get a lot. Right. Um, uh, who else we should talk about? We should talk about the mayor, uh, the Pope of Chili Town here, uh, who is, he had won four terms, he had lost re-election, and is going to be re-elected for his fifth term right as the fair opens. Uh, he's seen as a kind of man of the people, wearing his... Uh, bowler cap and his cigars and the unions like him and you know um, but the the city has been stagnating so people elect a new business type um, and then the economy collapses so he wins his fifth term yeah as an outsider um, yeah I didn't know much about I mean I just associate Chicago politics with being incredibly corrupt that's right. Um, which comes across here a little bit, but not so much as I guess I expected when I'm reading about Chicago. But again, this is a strangely idealized serial killer story, um, right? Because it is. It's very optimistic. Like, you don't, we don't get into the weeds of the corruption very much, at least. No, we don't. Um, because I guess it's secondary. I mean, he doesn't talk about, like, greasing off people in order to get stuff done. It just gets it done somehow. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, this is kind of jumping around a little bit, but just as a historian, I think, I mean, I can't imagine how he put this all together because there's so many different sources and so many different stories. And so this isn't taking away from Larson at all. But there's a quote early on, I'm on page 20, and he's talking about uh, Burnham first meeting Root, who was from Georgia. I didn't know that. Uh -huh. Lumpkin, Georgia. Um and he says, he admired Root's white skin and muscular arms, his stance at the drafting table. I mean, that's a great line, but where would you, or is there a source where Burnham is writing? <laughs> Dear Man, Dad. that Root has nice arms. <laughs> so as a historian, where do you draw this from? I mean, and how do you possibly fact check that? Or is it just a, an amalgamation of his impressions of... I don't know. I'm just I'm no, curious. No, just, when you're <laughs> writing history, how do you end up with a sentence like that? I mean, you you make a big amount of assumptions about how I write history, um, <laughs> but no, I, 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 it's it's interesting you bring that up. Like, 
I, I, I thought the same thing about a lot of his descriptions. I, I wonder if there isn't some letter he writes to his wife, like, man, you should see this guy's arms. I, 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 don't, I don't know. Like, or maybe it's just he describes him as a farm boy from Georgia, right. and you know he's making some extrapolations. I mean, to be a bit, not crude about it, but to be crude about it, uh, you know, this would be, you know, kind of mass market history. This would be, I think it's well done. Like, I, I know a lot of academics like to reject this kind of stuff out of hand because of stuff like that. Um, you know, there's not exactly a lot of historiography here. Um, of the things you would focus on if you were a historian, uh, there isn't a lot of the standard movements, right? This is almost a big man history in a way. True. There, there, there's not a lot about the labor stuff. There's not a lot about the the poor. When we get the people, it's like, well, what if they had like a Citizens of Chicago Day? Like it's it's very passive. Um, there are some little jokes and jabs, but they're also even at the expense of big people. Like at the opening fireworks when Jane Adams gets her wallet stolen, right? It's just like it's like a half second little joke. You're like, oh, she's here too. Isn't that nice? But you know you don't you don't get any of the the actual movements of people. That being said, yeah, it's <laughs> every so often I kind of stopped and I was like that that's that's something. Yeah, and there again, I I, don't, I like this book, um, and I would recommend it to you know cut to the chase. But there's a few moments where the prose sort of gets purplish there, like I just read, just sort of like oh really? Yeah. But yeah, the story still carries you along. And as you say, I mean, I think it's well-researched. There's no way you could possibly incorporate all that. That would be six different books, maybe. Um, I mean, it is. And, and again, like, the, 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 the little behind-the-scenes corruption is pushed aside. Like, you know, I mean, the guy we're, gonna, we're talking about is named Carter Harrison J Sr. And he runs twice. Um, his son also is mayor. I mean, like, we're talking about, like, a daily level. Like, it seems to be a Chicago tradition, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, you just kind of go in and out and in and out and in and out. Um, you know, but but that, that's what we're talking about here. But in, in the effort to move the story ahead, you're putting, like, people like Burnham on the chopping block and saying, like, how he wants this fair to work out, but... Darn it, the engineers of America are just not stepping up to to rival the Eiffel Tower. There's one dude who wanted to make like a tower out of logs, right? Like log. a Lincoln Logs uh, sort of tower, which would have been just, interesting. <laughs> it would have been something. It would have fallen over immediately. Yeah, no kidding. The wind and the weather would have taken care of that. <laughs> um, yeah. So again, once as always, we're sort of far afield of where we started, but um, they get going. They get the approval. They win the bid. All that. Um, the building goes and fits and starts. There's. There's a tension in the novel, of course, that there's no way they're going to, not the novel, the book, um, there's no way they're going to meet the deadlines and it's going to be impossible, um, which essentially you hear every four years with the, every Olympic city, right? That, that seems yeah, to sure. be um, always waiting to the last possible minute to finish up. Um, but of the two stories, which do you think is more interesting to you? Nick, is it is it the home stuff? Is it the the building of the exposition and pulling that off? As a historian, I'd say. I mean, as a historian, I'd say at least to me, uh, the the difference is the the home stuff is like the dessert course. Like it, it keeps you going. It's intriguing, but like the the real history that he does, at least to me, is the fair because you get this moment that the, the, the fair, which I think only lasts 10 months a year. Not so, even that. Yeah. yeah. Six or seven months. Yeah. It's, it's like a linchpin for American history, right? When we enter the world stage, we don't necessarily upstart the Parisians, 
but the Parisians are also impressed. Like everyone is impressed. What, there's something like 45 countries that come. And I mean, we don't get into the elements of the human zoos other than the Algerians yeah. just kind of wander around and like they take the bobsled too fast and six of them die. Like again, um, this is again, far field, like you mentioned, but there was a documentary that came out last year called class action park. About, oh yeah. Right. About action park in New Jersey. A lot yeah. of this seemed like action park in New Jersey where there's just like no safety rules. Hey, but like that was the seventies. So. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of what we're talking about here. Um, like when they have like an Algerian village, <laughs> Well, there's a story early on where he sends some guy to Africa to, like, buy a tribe of pygmies. <laughs> right. And the Belgians won't budge? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, so he rounds up Algerians instead, right? And he brings them back and they're in their garb. And, yeah, it's just, it's so layered as far as the show business, uh, uh, historiography. It, yeah, I mean, and, and that's the story that I think is the most absurd. I mean, and then H.H. H. Holmes, which, of course, this book became known for, um, is this little anathema. Like, again, I, when I picked it up, and it's called The Devil in the White City, I'm like, it's going to be an H.H. H. Holmes book. And it's kind of not, it's about half and half. But again, I'll be interested to talk to the, 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 the women who did the, the book, right? The, 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 the students who did the book, because I wonder what their overall opinion is, just because Holmes is such a compelling character. Um, I didn't know of him. Before. I mean, I guess I knew the name probably through this book, but um, is this sort of the first popular book about him or how well known I mean because the book comes out in 2003 Larson's book right how well was Holmes' story known at that point um yes and no I mean there was a book called Depraved by Harold Schechter now Schechter is one of these dudes who writes just serial killer true crime pulp nonsense and he's not that he's bad like he's totally fine I mean the man's probably in his 70s now and he was a professor oh at CUNY okay um, but like he writes a lot of these books, so it just kind of got, I'm sure if you were a Schechter collector, it would just be, yeah, that was fun. Uh, he has a bookshelf of these, right? True crimes, mysteries, that kind of stuff. And he, he like, and he's written on Charles Panzram, like all, all these dudes, right? Okay. Up and down. This is the first one that I remember getting any specific fame. I mean, uh, there was a guy named Robert Block from the seventies who was just kind of the great American novelist type who wrote kind of sucked up in the Truman Capote kind of fame. Okay, I don't you know, know him. Just true crime, but like written novelistically. Okay. Uh, wrote a book called American Gothic about him. He's also the guy who wrote uh, a book about Ed Gein, which became the basis for Psycho. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Um, and so like there had been written about him, but this is the first one that treats it like a historical document as opposed to like, you know, like, you know, Robert Stack narrating... <laughs> You know, kind of just hard gristle, okay. heavy drinking coffee kind of okay. novels. You know, so uh, the title, if you look at on the like the first couple pages, there's a quote from Burnham it says, "Make no little plans; they have no magic to stir men's blood." Uh-huh. Which that sets up that side of it. Like, here's a big dreamer, ambition. He's gonna um, make big plans and pull it off in the American way. And then the Holmes quote is which comes up in a couple different ways in the story i was born with the devil in me i could not help the fact that i was a murderer no more than the poet can help the inspiration to sing so i'm assuming that's where he gets that and then or jumping way ahead but the whole trial when they capture holmes finally and he's negotiating to sell his memoir while he's in jail um as a means to kind of persuade the public that he's 
innocent or he confesses at some point but not to everything or i was a little unclear on that yeah and well it, it, it's we don't ever get a satisfying end to a lot of these guys and holmes is no exception like i think he's convicted of like six deaths or seven deaths and then after he's convicted and is on death's door he writes his autobiography which starts out apparently as a way to extradite you know or, or at least forgive himself and then once he's found guilty, it just takes a turn, and he confesses to like forty murders. And there's but he was never con- he was executed before all those, correct? I don't right. know if that's in the book, but um, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then like, and then there's some people who link him to almost two hundred, which okay. even he says out of hand. That's that's crazy. Um, but yeah, how, how do you trust a serial killer? So right, <laughs> that's the whole point. And, and then like, at what point does his ego kick in? Because clearly, like as a sociopath, he doesn't care for a lick for any of these people. Right. Uh, in fact, in some ways. There's chapters in here where Larson makes it seem like he's murdering to get the skeletons just to pay off his debts, mm-hmm. right? Like, and and so for that, it's almost like a Leopold and Loeb situation where they're like, "Well, we need the money," uh, and these people are just in the way of his money, um, which is also crazy because like we haven't really talked about the Magic Murder Castle yet, uh, but literally the Murder Castle, like their their hallways that like people who go in it get like the Winchester Mansion vibe. We're like, this doesn't feel like it's right. Like their their hallways that seem to jut off for no reason. Um, turns out that not only are there like soundproof rooms with gas jets that then have s- like sluices Slides, down yeah. to the basement. <laughs> Where he's got vats of acid. So And, and a kiln, <laughs> a human-sized kiln, which very few people are suspicious of it. Yeah, you don't see that on Zillow these days. No, you do not. So let's, let's go to the murder castle, because that is an incredible story in its own, and you, you teased it nicely there. So it's a building that um, Holmes buys or construct he, he has it constructed right he has it constructed so when he first moves to chicago he sets up a pharmacy and uh um, well, he sort of buys into a pharmacy he does right? he shows up and works for a pharmacy and then charms this older couple into retiring and they disappear they disappear um and the novel or the novel the book the the story does a good job of trying to hide murders and allude to murders but if he's not convicted they don't put their foot down right right like so this is just a suspicious disappearance uh where the neighbors want to know what happened to him and he goes oh they moved to california uh and that's kind of it question mark yeah um and which again was probably more common i mean just the, the way we communicate today is so it's so much easier to follow up on someone or see where they are and so you just sort of say oh they up and left and you might never hear from them again yeah. And then, then and that's kind of it. And like and while he's operating this, he eventually like essentially it sounds like he owns almost like the city block, right? right. Like uh with barbershops and restaurants and salons and um up and down the street. And while that's happening, he's building this what becomes known as the murder castle. And his pharmacy's on the lower floor, am I remembering right? Mm-hmm. And then he's building these upper floors, which he's gonna he says ostensibly is a hotel for the world's fair. Right. But he's gonna invite make money off of that and um it's it even sounds like there are some permanent tenants and then some hotel floors and the hotel floors are where most of the murders happen not all but most but does he ever actually run it as a hotel i mean i don't remember it it sounds like there's a constant slew of tenants mostly young women uh who again part of the american story because of the electric lights people assume it's safer and it's an era where people are you know, going out for the first time. You know, these women are allowed to explore in a way that they really haven't. They're coming to the big city for jobs, and Chicago's where it's happening in this 82, 80, or 92, 93. Right. 
Um, and I, 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 I almost want to stop here for a half a second to introduce another character. But like, what he does with Holmes is it all seems so calculated, right? Like, as the you know insurance men are coming after him, as the debtors are coming after him, or a creditor, excuse me. Uh, he is always one step ahead. He has a plan. He knows what he's doing. He's figuring it out. And then I'm randomly... I'm on 246, but okay. he comes up constantly. Uh, Prendergast. Patrick Prendergast believed his appointment as corporation counsel was about to occur. He wanted to be ready and began making plans for how the staff office, uh, how to staff his office once the appointment came through. On May 9th, 1893, he got out of uh, he got out another of his postcard and addressed it to a man named W. F. Coolidge, in the Staatszeitung building. Pendergast uh, lectured Cooling on the fact that Jesus was the ultimate legal authority, and then gave him the good news: "I am a candidate for corporation counsel," he wrote. "If I become corporation counsel, you shall be my assistant." This guy is going to be the guy who assassinates at the end um, the mayor mm -hmm. Harrison, and I bring him up because like. We also now, I mean, they even allude to it. Uh, there's a growing amount of mental illness in America. Um, and uh, we just had the assassination of Garfield a few months before this by, a, you know, by Charles Gateau, a man who's also clearly mentally insane. Um, and we have no idea what to do with these people. Like, the, the, the lawyers in town keep getting these postcards uh, being berated for saying that Jesus is the ultimate authority and doing nothing about it. And so, as opposed to Holmes, who seems so calculated... Uh, Pendergrast just seems, well, he's insane. Like, it's amazing how even he makes a part in this story. Um, but yeah, sorry. No, you're right. That's a good contrast because um, Prendergast uh, is clearly out of touch with, like, reality, whereas Holmes is so in touch with reality that he's planning three steps ahead. Right. So there's that different um, sort of psychology of those two. And the one who disrupts the fair is the one who doesn't plan. The one who actually assassinates and, like, literally, it's the like the, the fair is about to end. I think there's, like, a week afterwards for everyone to see it one last time. But the last event really is supposed to be a speech by the mayor, and he gets shot dead. Mm -hmm. And, like, and so instead, they had, the whole fair goes into mourning. But... You know, meanwhile, Holmes just gets out of town. Like, he burns down the castle to get the insurance money. He leaves with the kids. It's just, it's crazy. And then the fourth act of this is the hunt for H.H. H. Holmes, which is, I think, what people remember the most. But, like, by the time we get there, you know, Olmstead has pulled him, like, pulled his hair out till he's gone bald. <laughs> like, uh, Root is dead. Burnham is, like, at the end of his rope. Um, uh, the manufacturer's building has collapsed, like, six times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Buffalo Bill came out okay. Yeah, uh, he made the most money out of anyone. <laughs> yeah, and he was yeah side. And then the Ferris wheel takes off here. We we, we should talk, talk about, about the Ferris wheel a little bit. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned before the Lincoln Logs, and they wanted to outdo the Eiffel Tower. So what can we do to come up with something iconic that people associate with with this fair? Um, and there's this young guy. He starts in San Francisco, right? Yep. And then he comes uh, west and or comes east, and uh, you tell a story. Um, well, no, I mean essentially everyone is trying to one up the Eiffel Tower by literally one upping the Eiffel Tower, just, just making like a slightly taller Eiffel Tower, different version of it, right? And um, so uh, this one guy named Ferris, <laughs> like literally the the aforementioned Ferris, uh, is someone who comes up with this idea to make a giant rotating wheel um, and 
it's sort of kind of based on a guy named Summer's Wheel, um, which also is designed like, you know, George Ferris had this idea, but it's, it's much more of a just like a rotating chair. And he's like, well, I have this idea. I'm going to make something giant. Um, and he is at a San Francisco um, called, Be- uh, no, maybe it's Pittsburgh. Anyway, uh, he works for a steel manufacturer, and he's like, look, I know all the math behind this steel. We should be able to make this thing work. Uh, It was 36 cars. It was, what, like 60 feet tall? Like, it's massive. Like, it's bigger than the Eiffel Tower, whatever it is. Um, And it's supposed to rotate, right, these cars. And each of the cars has, like, enough chairs to fit people. It has, like, a snack bar inside, they were saying, right? There's glass windows with iron bars so people don't leap to their death. <laughs> and um, the problem is, for him, effectively, they delay it so much making the decision that it doesn't open with the beginning of the factory or with the beginning of the fair. So everyone's just watching and waiting for this thing to fail. Well, um, they didn't think the engineering would work. I mean, it was a really a, a engineering marvel at the time for, because the low... I'm no engineer, but... The load shifts as it rotates in order to make it work, so to speak. Yeah. And, um, like, if I recall correctly, like, even the axle in the middle was, like, the biggest single thing that had ever been made, right? It was, like, 71 tons or something crazy like that. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't know how the forces would work. And when they were testing the systems, the entire park stopped because they tested the emergency brake and it squeaked like hell and people panicked. Um, And so to prove it was safe, like, Ferris's wife and everyone get on it. And it was so successful that people just started getting on the damn ride. Uh, yeah, and, and it lasts for almost a decade, I think. Um, and it does end up, uh, they didn't mention this in the book, I don't think, but it ends up at the St. Louis Fair. Like, they just oh, pack it up and move it down there. I didn't know that. Um, which, for those of you who don't know, that's our third, uh, our fourth city. I don't know. I don't know how St. Louis gets it either. Uh, but they built the arch for it. That, that was, that was that their... That was their iconic construction? The gateway. Yeah, I'm missing, and I don't have the guy's name. the The kid from San Francisco who sort of he gets in charge of the midway. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yes. Oh, he's a young guy and just sort of clearly charming and very ambitious. And he's the one that's um, that's why I mixed it up and I, I thought I highlighted a page. Was it Charles Wacker? Is that who it is? Yes. But yeah, I mean, he, and and what is he? He's a dude who's just oh, Bloom. Sorry, I'm just reading through this now. But yeah. Um, but another incredible story that just sort of self-starter. and. Um, well, and he doesn't want the job. He thinks it's going to be a waste of his time, right? Uh, so he asks for as much money as the president makes and they pay it. Right. And so he takes the job. And he kills it. And he kills it, right. I mean, and again, we're, we're talking about the you know, where all the fairground is. Like, the, the actual, the entertainment part. Um, yeah. And that stuff is still kind of sort of up. Like, if you go to Jackson Park, you can see the midway still. Um, at least some of the buildings. Like, mm-hmm. it's that kind of uh, gothic Which look. is the south side of Chicago. Right. That's mm-hmm. right. Uh, and Olmsted, I think, partially designs that too like it's the big open fields it's the kind of gothic buildings mm-hmm. it's uh it's gorgeous yeah soul bloom that's who we're talking about okay um who goes on to be a member of congress <laughs> of, course. <laughs> of course he does 
of course he does. So we talked, I mean, we're all over the place. That <clears throat> seems to be our modus. Um, what really drew me in, and I liked the home story all along, but the hunt at the end for him as a, uh, the Detective Geyer, is that what it is? Yeah, that um, sounds right. Is um, trying to track him down, and he just sort of personally takes it on to literally follow him all over the country um, and get his man, so to speak. I found that really compelling, maybe right. more so because Holmes is traveling. He's he's married several times concurrently, uh, and he's traveling with three young children um, at the time as he's sort of moving through the Midwest, like Toronto, and then. Indianapolis and Cincinnati Cincinnati um, and you just sort of are fearing and I didn't know this part of the story at all is he going to murder these children and, and get rid of them he's going to do some sort of horrible experiment on them what's happening while uh, the guy is, is hunting him down and following these leads to track him down mm -hmm. I, I find that really compelling way to end the story well it is and, it, and, it, and again it, it's I mean he, he dies at the age of 34 like all this stuff is happening so quickly on top of each other, right? Like, and you said he graduates from Exeter at 16. His first marriage is when he's 17, mm -hmm. right? Like, and so I don't know at what point he starts developing these plans, but he never stops. Like for whatever it is, 15 years, th this is his plot. And, and like you said, um, essentially he's arrested by the Pinkertons uh, for tax fraud or for insurance fraud. And the last couple chapters, the, the fourth act, is essentially trying to pin a murder beef on him. Because if it's just the insurance fraud, he'll be out in a few and years. And it was for his, um, his henchman's wife, right? Yep. That, yeah. Okay. Uh, Peitzel. Uh, Peitzel's disappeared, and he's essentially traveling with Peitzel's wife and children. Um, and, like, the cup game he's playing, where, like, he has other people come to town and doesn't let the kids leave the hotel, like... It gets really grim by the end. Um, and then, you know, then the trail runs cold and the guy starts backtracking. Like, it, it's true. Um, and I guess there's a little group that we can introduce here, which is so ridiculous, which is the Whitechapel Club in Chicago, mm -hmm. who are those fanboys of Jack the Ripper and the Jack the Ripper murders and the between five and ten people that he apparently murdered and, like, they describe these old men sitting in this club as like collecting murder memorabilia, uh, having reprintings of the From Hell letters, like, and in their backyard is someone so much more evil who, and they don't do, like, they have no idea. Exactly, yeah. Um, there was a book, and this is completely off topic, but apparently a relative of, of Mudgett, uh, years later, wrote a unauthorized biography of Mudgett where he claims that, okay, so one of the things of him being a con artist was that he was a, an actual, an English Duke, right? Oh, like he right, pretends yeah. to be an English Duke. Uh, and one day he will take uh, many like to Europe and all this stuff, yada, yada, yada. Well, uh, the, the relative is convinced it's true and that H.H. H. Holmes was Jack the Ripper. He writes a whole book. <laughs> I'd heard that connection before. Yeah. Um, Completely not. Yeah, it's not historically true, but it makes for a good story. It does. Um, it's also interesting, and this is just history of crime. We thought it was impossible for someone to murder someone they didn't know back then. That's one, one of the reasons why they consider him the first serial killer. Like, when you're a highwayman and you're robbing for money, it's just, well... You're in the way. Yeah. yeah. 
but like, and so you can tell with this criminologist, he's like, no, he couldn't have possibly killed his kids. There's, there's no reason for him to kill the kids. Why would he kill the kids? And when he finds the dead kids, he's, you, you, you can tell that there's something about him that changes permanently. And that's what we're getting here. Like for the first time, like, cause I mean, to be blunt, if there's, if you wanted to kill people, there's ways to kill people. You join the military, you, you, you know, like, and that's why you get these weird highway men out West that we, we, we alluded to earlier. And so the idea that Holmes is so methodical and kills so many people and seems to have not only no remorse about it, but like he changes his story as evidence comes to light. It's really dark. <laughs> yeah. One thing I wondered, because he was flipping um, all these insurance fraud claims and making a lot of money, yep. is where's the money going? Because it seems like if he's getting $10,000 on someone, that, that's a lot of money back then. It is. Um and I guess he's just sort of playing that out, like spending it. But I, I never got a sense of where all this money that he seemed to be getting was going. While he seemingly has a profitable pharmacy going on, and um, that was one hole I wondered about. And maybe I missed something. Did, no, did I, I miss something? I think it's money going into the bottom of a never-ending bucket. Like because he's taking on so much debt to build like the castle, to build all this stuff. That I think it's just putting good money after bad money. Okay. Until like, and I mean, like you alluded to, back then you could just kind of move away. Right. And so that's why there were these people like Frank Geyer who are just chasing him around the country. And up until he gets caught, I mean, it was sort of working for him, I guess, in a sick way. Yeah. He, I mean, he's, he's managing to keep murdering people or, or exploiting the insurance loopholes. Yeah. In order to get paid that way. Um, yeah. And it, it's just the, the one thing, I don't want to say it's jarring. Uh, it's just Geyer is the only one who's introduced all at once. Um, and it's interesting because it's as Holmes's world is falling apart. He's like, well, you guys got me and I uh, think he's captured in Philadelphia, you know, and guy just is a, you know, a Philly detective. Um, and then he ends up like globe trotting to try to figure this stuff out, which everyone wants to help him because he's like, yeah, you could really help us get rid of some of these murder cases. Mm -hmm. it's, and it's interesting, just sort of like in traditional sort of detective lore, he's like putting the shoe leather out. He's literally going house to house in these um, neighborhoods in Indianapolis, in Cincinnati, um, trying to make the connection where Holmes and his family stayed. And does anyone remember these kids? And um, and everyone is so, like, thrown off by Holmes in some way. Like, they almost all remember him, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. But, like, I mean, I don't know. I worked retail. Like, there's some people that just stick out in my head, too. Like, and, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's something. It's really something. Uh, you know, and Holmes is making, like, a quarter million dollars to like tell, like sell his confessions and things. And yeah, it's just, it's all very strange. Um, so you want to wrap this up, Mike? Uh, yeah. I, again, we jumped all over the place, but, um, as far as recommending this, absolutely recommend it. It would be, I mean, we're not teaching it. The, the students are choosing it as an outside reading. So they read it on their own. We check in on their book discussions and then they'll write and present on it. It would be an interesting book to teach. Um, yeah. It would be perfect for American experiment, our class, our humanities class. Yeah. In that it's fact-based, but it's also like told like a novel. Um, interesting structure of the chapters and points of view that he jumps in and out of. So I, w I would definitely recommend And the kids love it. Um, it was a big success last year, um, just based on checking in on a conversation last week. Um, the students who choose it. Are enjoying it, I think. Yeah, totally. 
one thing I would say as I'm flipping through and we're talking about it, what I wished were there a little more of, I mean, there's a few photographs in here, but as he's describing the, uh, the white city and the way and the, you know, liberal arts building and all this, I, I would love some more photos of what that looked like. And I'm sure it's online now. No, um, I, I agree. Like, like there's, this is almost 20 years old. Do like a photo version, like a exactly. coffee table book version. Yeah. It'd be great. Um, so I recommend it without any hesitation. Yeah, I mean, I, I I can't recommend this enough. I I think it's, I mean, and again, just flip to the damn index. Like, the cold open is a story about how Burnham is on the Olympic, trying to communicate with someone who's on the Titanic. Yeah. Right. That like L. Frank Baum goes there. Jane Adams is there. They talk about how the Miracle Mile came around. Like, the 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 connections. And like, there's a whole, yeah, the whole other layer with just the big fat cats, literally fat cats. Like he goes into the dinner menus and the nine courses and just, it's fascinating to see that side of the Gilded Age. Well, and again, like this is a story written by a guy who clearly just went into the archives at wherever, you Chicago, the, the Smithsonian, the Library of Congress, found something. He's like, well, this has to be in the book. Like that menu, I'm sure was just some leaflet in the bottom of some file. And he was like, yeah, of course. And it's a great you know, talisman, I guess, of, of, of the age and what they're going through. Yeah, and like, and Olmstead is never there because he's like working on the Biltmore estate and uh, he, he so badly wants landscape architecture to be considered an art like everything else and, you know, uh, Burnham has nothing but nice things to say but does not consider landscape architecture. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's fun, guys. It is good. Um, and I recommend most of his other books. Uh, I, I've done in the, the, the Garden of Beasts. I've done... Uh, what was the one you were the talking splendid about? Splendid in the Vile. Vile. Splendid in the Vile is good. <laughs> Isaac Storm is good. It's about the Galveston uh, hurricane. I couldn't get into Thunderstruck, but I, I figured I feel like this is the better version of it. Um, but anyway, uh, are you reading anything right now that you'd recommend? I just finished on Saturday um, James McBride's Deacon King Kong. I'm a big James McBride fan. He wrote Good Lord Bird. We've talked about that here before. Sure. He has a great nonfiction piece about James Brown kill him and leave um i saw him speak at the history center for that book tour and um i can definitely recommend deacon king kong he's just a great novelist and writer and i think he comes out of the sort of hard-boiled reporting for washington post and baltimore sun and um just a, a great american writer perfect thumbs up for that for sure how about you um i just read well you know what screw it um there's a podcast I mentioned already called Last Podcast on the Left. They came out with their first book last year called The Last Book on the Left. Yeah, uh, you mentioned that to me. Yeah. yeah. And, and I will be blunt. If you're someone who, like, it is the blackest of black humor. So if you if that's not you, skip it. Okay. Uh, but they tell stories of serial killers, and they do it with punch-up. So the guy, Marcus, does the straight story, and then the other two who are trained comedians Make jokes, and if that's not your your cup of tea, don't do it. But since we're talking a serial killer book, I've got to plug it. I find them funny. They got me into it. Um, I mean, and I can't. I can I can plug a normal book like a person. <laughs> uh, if you want something else that's kind of just pop history, I read Brad Meltzer's book, The First Conspiracy, which right. is about the plot to kill George Washington. It also takes some conjecture, but. You want a conspiracy book, damn it! You got to take some conjecture. He's, and, he's fun that way. I've read other books by him, yeah, and he and again he, has a novelist arc to his story. And I don't know how accurate he is as a historian, but I mean, uh, there's I don't clearly think he's some inaccurate. Yeah, there's clearly sometimes he runs with it to make the story better, but that's fine. And again, it has that Dan Brown problem where a chapter is two pages. 
but it's fine. It, it's it's enjoyable and you can run with it. So uh, the first conspiracy, Brad Meltzer and uh, Josh Mensch. So I got to ask the last podcast on the left. What's the title? Uh, that's the name of the podcast. I know, but what what is that reference to, or is it just uh, the movie, sort of... uh, the Last House on the Left? I don't know the movie. It's a straight up horror movie. Okay. Um, but like they do, you know, conspiracies. They're on Spotify only now. They got an exclusive contract. But like, if there's a if there's a cult you're interested in, they've done a thing on it. Uh, you know, Jim Jones, uh, Jonestown. They've done every serial killer. They're they're if you're into this kind of stuff, their uh, John Wayne Gacy series is excellent. Their Jeff Dahmer series is excellent. Um, but they do other things. Like they, they did the history of the Mormon church, which was fascinating. Scientology, which was fascinating. Um, but again, like they have strong language and um, it's black humor. But mm-hmm. that being said, unlike a lot of history podcasts, they cite all their sources. They They have a bibliography. They do real research. So... Uh, we have fun with history here too. So I, I give them credit for citing their sources and making it as accurate. Cool. As I'll check that out. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks guys. Thank you. That was great. Required reading is a product of do letter podcasting and produced at Marist school. All opinions contained therein are a product of the hosts and do letter podcasting and not of Marist school. The theme song is Feelin' Good by Kevin McLeod. Find all of his music at incomtech.com, used under the Creative 4 Commons license. The host is Nick Hoffman, and it is produced by Nick Hoffman. The co-host is Mike Burns. Thanks.